Welcome to the Loving Covid Times podcast. This is a co-production between Ratio Talks and On Our Radar, bringing stories from the margins to the front page. A series of short conversations about helping and being helped in the middle of a pandemic. Today we're with Ian McRitchie, uh, entrepreneur turned social entrepreneur. Um, he's a previous contributor to Ratio Talks. We've come back to have a conversation about the pandemic and what happens next. Um, this podcast comprises short conversations, but there really is a lot we could cover today. We're going to do it briefly, um, uh, cover three aspects of Ian's work, and then uh, we'll post links for listeners that want to learn a little bit more. Um, Ian, first of all, give us a brief reprise of MCR Pathways. Who's it for? What does it involve? And what has been the impact? Well, M MCR Pathways is really part now of the education system, um, at least in one country, and ambitions to take it to other countries. Um, but what it works in practice with is those that are in the care system or on the edges of the care system in secondary schools. And basically, we have dedicated staff members in each school that we work, currently support just under 2,500 young people each week. And that's entirely about relationship-based practice. So we have staff that support them. We then have a dedicated mentor. There's a volunteer mentor that comes in to work with the young people, as well as giving them sort of bite-sized menus of choices to go and experience different possibilities in work in education, university, and college. And effectively, what it does is it takes um, young people who, sadly, if you're in the care system, you really have a 50-50 chance as to whether you'll progress from school to college, university or employment. And those that don't sadly then consume considerable social resource, but most importantly for us, they do not realise their potential. If you're mentored currently and supported in one of the MCR pathway schools, the average three-year result independently verified is 82% are progressing to college, university and employment. And the most important thing is they're making the choices and sustaining those choices. So it really is very simple for us as MCR Pathways is focused on ensuring our young people get the best education outcomes, therefore job choices and ultimately life chances. And it's a individual by individual. So this is an extraordinary story, um, not only um, having uh, impact, but also uh, at scale right across Scotland, as you say, moving into other countries. And then along comes the pandemic. And of course, this is delivered through schools. Schools are closed. But one of the things you did was that you surveyed the young people about their COVID experience. I think about 1,400 responded to the survey. That in itself was really interesting. What, what did they have to say? Well, really, we, we I think as everyone, you know, when lockdown hit, you know, we were faced with, you know, one of two choices. Either we just accept and accept the fact that young people will be lost into behind closed doors. And again, for most disadvantaged, that creates all sorts of, of issues. Or we, as we in fact ended up doing, is create a virtual mentoring platform. Um, and get as many young people engaged on it as possible. And we were able to engage, actually, and it is, it's a precise number because we did count it one by one, but we engaged 1,936 of those young people in a variety of forums. 
um, both from video um, right through to just even message exchanges. And um, so that allowed us to continue the relationships and also support some quite traumatic situations, as well as, I have to say, add considerable value and considerable um, richness to, to what the young people were telling us. But what we were able to do is ask them the question, because part of, you know, my general concern, if you like, about the changes in systems and institutions is that it really needs to reflect the voice of those most affected. And we heard lots of discussions about what's happening to the young people and particularly with respect to schools returning, how can we best get schools to return? And our concern was we need to have those young people at the absolute centre um, as a very simple principle, but clearly a bit of a challenge um, to, to engage. But we asked them the question. So we, we talked to them sent out surveys and then had little focus groups and a number of things and were able to get just under 1,400 to engage and over 1,000 gave us detailed, comprehensive responses. Um, and it was across three or four areas. First area of you know, how they felt about COVID and about lockdown and how that has impacted. And what we found was some profound findings of you know, two-thirds of the young people, and again, these are big numbers, um, were feeling low, anxious, stressed, you know, real mental well-being issues coming across. You know, 90% had their sleeping patterns impacted, and you know, a quarter were really struggling to sleep. And again, I think we can all relate to these things, but I think for those disadvantaged, their disadvantage is just magnified to a considerable degree with what they have experienced. But the second thing we then asked them is, you know, what, what have you been able to do with schoolwork? Because again, there was a lot of anecdote about schools being open and being supported and young people engaging, but then some young people not engaging. And again, the stats for us were really stark that 70% did no schoolwork during that period from lockdown to when the survey was conducted in June and July. And um, so plenty of time to assess. But again, we dug below that to say, why was that not possible to do schoolwork and half of those young people and again important that we heard their voice half of them didn't simply because the work was too hard to relate to to understand and I think that's a general observation about online learning and to be fair to teachers they had a couple of days notice to try and get things set up and clearly nobody was going to be able to do that but the survey highlighted, you know, half couldn't understand and really needed to have that kind of teacher explanation sitting behind it. Um, but then we got to also other facts that a quarter of the young people, just over a quarter, 26%, are young carers. They had caring responsibilities that meant they couldn't engage. Um, other bits of, of insight, which we've, we, again, were surprised at, in asking them the question of what would have helped, what will help if we have future lockdowns, you know, what will actually help in that whole um, online learning is huge point. 42% said, please give me some printed materials because my online experience um, is not good. It's difficult to concentrate. I do, and again, it seems a bit counterintuitive for, for young people to want and need that kind of paperback. But that, again, was a key bit of insight we were able to, to share with schools. But we also asked them about going back to school. How important was school? What did they want to see? What did they not want to see? And again, overwhelming thing that came out is schools are absolutely not just about education. 
they really are safe havens. They really are community hubs. They're where young people have positive relationships that help drive hope and aspiration. You know, and if anything for me now, you know, we need to consider schools as 365-day places, not just, and we're not asking the teachers to work 365 days, but it really needs to be a full-time permanent experience irrespective of what we have to go through in terms of lockdowns it's just one of those cornerstones that we knew but now we know as a fact so the young people have told us that they need full-time education they need the routine they need the structure and these are the most disadvantaged you know of our community that are very very difficult to reach and they told us other things that were fed into the school system of you know 75 percent um, asked for one-to-one time with teachers and again, it changes the perception that some people have of, you know, these young people don't want to learn, they're disengaged. These young people want to learn. It's just we haven't found a way to consistently encourage, support and motivate them. But they've told us categorically, 75%, give me one-to-one teacher time or help return. A standout, the highest rated response, and bearing in mind all these young people weren't just young people being mentored by MCR. There were young people who were in scope for being mentored by MCR. 82% ask for the help of a mentor in the return to school, and that would make it easier for them. And what was overwhelming from all the feedbacks was relationships is what they needed. Relationships are what they want, and that's where they recognise you know, the support. And there was then other aspects that we we have fed into the school system of you know insights of to what the young people are thinking about their future. They're probably more positive about the long term future actually with these supports in place. Um, but there's things we have to do, and most importantly for me in doing this survey and exercise is to get lived experience to get those affected by decisions, either policy ones or practice ones, to make sure that they are centre stage. No decision should be taken without that centre of gravity of what do the people think and what do they need? Let's not assume. We need to ban the word assumption um, from any kind of decision-making process. I think that's all terrific. You know, what I love about that is it's also counterintuitive. You know, you, you've got here young people asking for school because it provides structure, young people asking for paper as well as online. In some ways, young people asking for more school. Um, there's so much more there we could dip into, but there's one aspect I wanted to ask you about. The fact that 1,400 responded, was that an indication of the ability of MCR to keep in touch with the young people? Um, were, were, the, were the mentors still involved? Were your staff rates still able to keep in contact with the young people during the pandemic? Yes, I, I think it's the fact, because I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, and again, someone will feedback, this is by far across the UK, the most comprehensive, you know, survey and assessment and feedback of our most disadvantaged. And it was because of pre-existing relationships. You know, without the pre-existing relationships, whether with MCR staff, with mentors and with others, then we wouldn't have been able to generate that kind of response. Um, so it's, it again, for me, just emphasises the point. You know, as much as we talk adult complexity, sophistication systems, relationships matter. Relationships determine what succeeds and what fails. So the degree of response, I think, was entirely down 
to pre-existing relationships and also their trust in us and their trust that their voices would be heard. We didn't say anything other than your voices are important. We want them to be heard. And, you know, the, the qualitative feedback we got was extraordinary. You know, we have we have pages upon pages upon pages of their opinions. You know, to the extent I feel a huge professional obligation, actually, to make sure that that is shared. And that's shared at the highest level of government right through to the day-to-day -day practitioner, whoever that may be in social work or education. So now you're beginning to look forward. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, as I said, turned social entrepreneur, and you're you know, obviously interested in the economic impact of the pandemic, as of course are we all. You have written this really nice piece in the Glasgow Herald uh, where you start off by talking about economic success and relationships being two sides of the same coin. So say, say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, from my experience, and I guess I've, I've had almost two lives of one in the economic professional business world um, in transforming and trying to help turn around organisations. And then clearly I've devoted you know, a full time in a full time volunteering capacity to to focus, and I guess this this is third sector. Um, I've seen and heard two different languages, but actually, I've seen and I see a complete commonality. Um, we need, and I think COVID has taught us this: we absolutely have to have economic recovery because economic recovery is now our greatest health and well being emergency, and that for me is the driving. We have to create wealth because opportunity comes from that but make sure that it is shared far more equitably than it ever has been shared so i think prior to covid i've, I've been aware of two separate worlds that there's so much that we can do together for the greater good and again no one loses out in that covid has absolutely brought it to bear that there are those that just we do not reach you know a classic even going back to the survey we found you know, there's still a hardcore 15% of young people who don't have internet access, which is nuts, you know, in this world. You know, there's lots of, of detail to support that, but we couldn't reach them, but we now can reach them. So for me, sitting back, reflecting, how do we build back better? There's no question economic recovery has to come first. Um, it's got to drive, but it cannot be separated now from social policy. It cannot be separated. And the best way I can describe it is we need to fuse them. But that's easy to say, but I actually think we can practically make it happen. And, you know, MCR Pathways and what it does, you know, is and does engage corporates to, to want to get involved because we want some of their staff to mentor and clearly give the young people opportunities. And we obviously work with social work and education on the young people side. But fusing them, the definition of it is now what matters because people agree, yes, we should cover the economy and then definitely make sure everyone benefits from that. The next level is what I've tried to express in the article to say, okay, how do we do that? And I have three things to share that I think become the true definition of a circular economy. If we can have first and foremost, a degree of social inclusion. So in other words, we need to give the right to have food. We need to make sure everyone is digitally enabled and engaged and we don't create two tracks. There's a high risk just now as everything's gone online, they are, we are accelerating a little bit of disadvantage. So that social inclusion partner, people have to accept we need to invest in it. But here's the rub for me. I have seen 
extraordinary amounts of spend in that area that could just be reallocated because we've created conflicts of interest in different departments and budgets. We all talk about early intervention, but there's little of it that goes on. Certainly if it's about beyond a parliamentary term or if it's beyond you know, five, 10 year periods, people say, yes, that's a big saving, but they don't act on it. So I do see social inclusion as a cornerstone, but can see ways in which that can be done cost effectively without adding considerable, but we have to invest in it. But the second part for me then is social mobility. And social mobility is where MCR Pathways sits because we're supporting young people really simply to be what they're capable of being. You know, that's the most important thing to get across. These are not young people that, that don't have the capability. They have more than enough capability. It's just giving them the support and making sure we have a proper definition of social mobility. And again, in the article, I've added sort of the weight of what I would expect to see there. But the third part then is the contribution, a social contribution I think organisations can make. And the rub here is not as a one-way process, because what we can evidence, and again, even using MCR Pathways as an example, is that corporates, when they make the contribution, get benefit and they get benefit that translates into the bottom line. And again, example being, you know, there's lots of studies around the world. One I do pick out um, that has a huge number um, of, of participants. I think it was done over 49 different countries, 192 different organizations. Um, and it proves that an engaged workforce drives productivity and profitability by more than 20%. The single way to have a more engaged workforce, the most potent way, is to allow relevant volunteering in the local community and it becomes, again, self-fulfilling. So for me, social inclusion, we need to take care of those that haven't. We've already demonstrated with COVID that we can. We just need to continue that line, but be honest with ourselves about the budgets required, the investment required, but eliminate the conflicts of interest that we have in the system between competing budgets and that side of it. Mobility, we need to support and relationship-based through the education system. The education system for me is where we get social mobility. And again, the MCR Pathways, um, if you like, simple formula is education outcomes dictate job choices, dictate life chances. We support those young people through the education system, particularly secondary schools. Primary is important, obviously university college important, but particularly that moment that I think lives are more defined in the secondary school, that really will propel mobility. And then we have a way in which organisations can contribute and get the benefits. So for me, this is a proper definition of post-COVID circular economy that can drive real social change and help us, if we put the, those affected at the centre of it, help us redesign where we need to redesign our institutions, because they do need to be redesigned, but I accept the fact that that, that would probably happen incrementally. But I think as inclusion, mobility and contribution as being the absolute policy drivers against the backdrop of, of economic recovery gives us a chance and opportunity. Of that, there is no question and I have no doubt. We were talking just before recording about the fact that the response to this piece in the Herald has been universally positive. But on the other hand, 
we're all drawn to the status quo ante. You know, we're, to some extent, we're all trying to get back to where we were. You're proposing a different future. I mean, are you optimistic that some of these things can take hold? Well, we've got a moment in time, and I do think um, I'm optimistic if we can create action and momentum. No, I am not if we leave it for another 6, 12, 18 months, you know, because it's human nature we're talking about here. So I actually don't criticise individuals. I just accept human nature. Human nature, when it's driven to change and it has no choice, it does extraordinary things, evidencing what we've been able to do with COVID and some of the things that we've been able to achieve. Um, there's been momentum. Human nature, however, does not like change and it wants to settle back into routine and structure. And that's what slows down um, any kind of rate off. So for me, if we keep centre stage, this needs to include more people in a social inclusion sense. We need to set our, our systems and society up to ensure people can be socially mobile. Then I live in hope and also then demonstrate you can actually get benefit from doing this. You know, if you're a corporate, even if you're an individual in a sort of contribution sense. So I think short answer, Michael, is I am not optimistic at all based on human nature if we leave this as it is, because we will revert back. I don't think it will revert entirely back to what it was pre the pandemic, but it will just settle. If we can get a dialogue going of, look, this is just a waste of human potential and a waste of money, you know, even for those economists that want to look at it in a financial sense, you know, let's Let's use this and use it as just create incremental steps. Let's get into the dialogue of inclusion, mobility and contribution. Let's get that in, stuck into every single policy statement, political or otherwise. Then we can start to build a little bit of momentum. Um, so I live in hope. Don't expect radical um, and I think the, the response I had to the article really summed it up. You know, there was a universal these are really powerful things, powerful words, powerful ideas, but there was a little trickle of. Um, now, I do live in hope because, uh, you know, I'm involved in a couple, albeit just in a Scottish government sense, um, of discussions that, well, what does that mean? But the classic, you know, as you know, with any policymaker is, unfortunately, they need to then, they think they have to take account of everything. So it becomes a committee and it becomes a, um, let's look at something universally, which immediately starts, loses its potency, loses its targeting, loses its effectiveness. Um, but I do, and at least still involved in some of those discussions that give me the hope that actually at least some of the words that we're, we're suggesting, proposing will be included and some of the thinking behind it will gain some traction. Well, thanks so much, Ian. You certainly inspire me. I hope you inspire some of our listeners to try and develop some of these ideas and make the future, uh, make the, the pain that we've suffered in this pandemic worthwhile in terms of a better future for, for all of our population. Um, we're going to uh, put the links to uh, the many things that you've talked about uh, alongside the podcast. But for the moment, um, thanks again. Uh, we really appreciate you making the time. Thank you.